The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled On the Cusp of a New Targeted Treatment Era in ALS, Exploring the Emerging Therapeutic Landscape, featuring Professor Dame Pamela Shaw from the University of Sheffield and Sheffield Institute for Translational Neuroscience in Sheffield, England. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash RQP860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. ALS is a heterogeneous condition. Up until recently, we've tended to treat this condition in clinical trials as though it was one thing. But we know that it's heterogeneous clinically, pathologically, prognostically, and very importantly, genetically. And I think we're now realizing that as we're developing new therapeutic approaches, we need to take into account this heterogeneity. So more than 30 genes now are known to predispose to ALS. The first one, of course, identified back in 1993 was SOD1. And with the development of genetic sequencing technologies, new genes are coming out all the time now. One of the most recent ones is GLT8D1. The size of the bubbles in this cartoon portrays how common the genetic changes are. So C9ORF72 is the most common, accounting for about 40% of familial cases or about 10% of ALS as a whole, and SOD1 is the second most common genetic change. And we know from years of studying these pathogenic genes that the process of motor neuron injury is complex. If we take the situation of SOD1, we know that at least 11 things go wrong, either in the motor neurons themselves, so mitochondrial dysfunction, oxidative stress, excitotoxicity, impaired protein homeostasis, etc., but also in the neighborhood cells, the surrounding glial cells, the crosstalk between motor neurons and astrocytes and microglia is also deranged in ALS. So it's a complex set of pathophysiological mechanisms. I've worked for years trying to improve the outlook for patients with ALS, and we can think of how to manage this disorder under these three headings, I think. So multidisciplinary care improves both life expectancy and quality of life. And we've got an array of treatments to manage symptoms and intervening with non-invasive ventilation, for example, improves survival and quality of life. But what our patients really want from us is better neuroprotective therapy. And really, at the moment, we have only Rilizol, which was rigorously tested. More than a thousand patients helped us test Rilizol in the late 1990s. And there is undoubtedly an improvement, as can be shown in this Kaplan-Meier survival curve. Rilizol undoubtedly has an effect in improving life expectancy compared to the placebo group, but the effect is modest, improving survival only by about three months on average. So this was a first important step in any of the neurodegenerative disorders, but we need to build on that modest effect of Rilizol. So what is the emerging treatment landscape like? Well, there is a very exciting phase now for genetic therapy trials. 
and the one that's going to come to fruition soonest is gene silencing for ALS caused by SOD1 mutations. So SOD1 mutations account for 20% of familial ALS or about 2% of ALS as a whole. But we've had good models of SOD1 disease for some time now that has allowed us to work through the evidence building confidence that human trials might be successful. So I've already shown you in another figure the complexity of the pathophysiological changes. Rilizol has several effects, but the main one is dampening down excitotoxicity. So not surprising that the effect is modest, given that all of these damaging mechanisms are still ongoing. So a good idea would either to be to have a cocktail of therapies that would intervene with several of these mechanisms, or to go right upstream and do something about the rogue gene. So knock down the expression of the SOD1 gene. And we know that that can be done safely in genetically engineered mice. So you can knock out the SOD1 gene, not with complete impunity, but with relative impunity. So the mice still live to a ripe old murine age. And several investigators, including our team at Sheffield, have worked with the SOD1 transgenic mouse model using either ASOs, antisense oligonucleotides, or gene therapy using AAV9 viral vectors, and have shown that if you use a self-complementary AAV9 incorporating a molecule to knock down SOD1, you make a massive difference to the neurological function of the mice. So the treated mice are in the red line here. This is increasing neurological deficit in the control untreated group. You make a difference, quite a significant difference to survival of the mice. And importantly, you can do this free from off-target effects. And this is just to show in that mouse model with intrafecal delivery of a knockdown molecule using an AAV9 viral vector, measuring the level of the SOD1 protein in CSF, you could get a very nice lowering of the SOD1 level, giving confidence that this could be an important biomarker in human treatment trials. And just briefly, we also showed in the mouse model that lowering the SOD1 level improved the motor neuron count at end stage and got rid of the inflammatory, the astrogliosis infiltrate in the ventral horn of the spinal cord. And I'll just show you the effect of this genetic therapy in the SOD1 mouse model. So here we have two brothers from the same litter, the one running around looking pretty normal has been treated with the genetic therapy and the litter mate has ALS, as you can see from its impaired gait, dragging its hind legs behind it. So really the animal models giving confidence that this approach might be appropriate in human beings. And very excitingly, this is looking promising in human beings. So in a slightly different approach, rather than a viral vector 
to knock down SOD1 using an antisense oligonucleotide. So this is injected via a lumbar puncture into the cerebrospinal fluid. The ASO binds to the messenger RNA from SOD1, causing degradation and therefore lowering the level of the SOD1 protein. And in exciting phase one, phase two studies, which were published in the New England Journal of Medicine, there were some very interesting results emerging. So this was first in man. So there were four cohorts building up to a maximum dose of 100 milligrams of the treatment known as tofersin, 50 participants worldwide. And clearly first into man, this was a safety and tolerability study but there were secondary measurements as well, including measuring potential biomarkers and with exploratory clinical endpoints. And if we just focus here on the orange line, which shows you the highest treatment group, the 100 milligram treatment group, and you can see here in the left-hand side the level of SOD1 in cerebrospinal fluid coming down very nicely in that highest treatment group, lowering the SOD1 level by 37%. But also, if we focus on the same orange lines, really interestingly, the CSF neurofilament light levels also came down in that highest dose treatment group. And similarly in blood, the neurofilament light levels came down. So for the first time, clearly measuring SOD1 is very targeted, but we've got an indication that if you have a treatment that is working, you're going to lower the levels of neurofilament light, which are an index of motor neuron injury. So this is the first potential identification of biomarkers of therapeutic efficacy, which could make a huge difference to ongoing clinical trials. And these were some results from the exploratory clinical endpoints. So here is the ALS functional rating scale, again remaining pretty nice and stable in the highest treatment group, measuring slow vital capacity respiratory function, again much better in the treated group, and some evidence of improvement in muscle strength tested for by handheld dynamometry. And as an investigator in this trial, it's the first ALS trial I've taken part in where patients were reporting definite stabilization or improvement in their motor function. So this phase three of this study, known as VALOR, is ongoing. The study has closed now. It's in the analysis, the data analysis phase. And so we hope to get the results of the phase three trial by the end of this year. And this is just to show how the trial worked. So there was a screening phase, and then in the phase three trial, tofersin versus placebo, at the end of the experimental period, everyone had the chance to go on to the open label study. 178 participants have taken part from multiple countries. And the primary endpoint is analysis based on the ALS functional rating scale. And very excitingly, and as a huge change in what we can do, there's now a trial starting known as ATLAS, which is about trying to catch patients in the pre-symptomatic phase. 
patients with SOD1 mutations followed up over time, when their neurofilament levels start to creep up, that's when they go into the trial phase of having treatment versus placebo, and that will tell us if intervening at the very first sign of motor neuron injury might be very beneficial. So the commonest genetic cause of ALS is caused by hexanucleotide expansions in the first intron of the C9-ORF72 gene with three major mechanisms by which motor neurons may become injured. So some evidence that haploinsufficiency of the normal C9 protein might be important, but the important measures of toxicity are caused by RNA foci sequestering RNA binding proteins and then these toxic dipeptide repeat proteins which are produced because the abnormal pre-RNA transcript gets out of the nucleus into the cytoplasm and gets to the ribosome so that these toxic proteins are produced. So there is another ASO trial targeting these two mechanisms shown in the green box to get rid of the dipeptide repeat proteins in particular. So this study of BIIB078 is in progress. Again, first interman studies, so multiple cohorts. The fourth cohort was looking promising, so there are now two more cohorts. Similar to the SOD1 trial that I've just described, the primary endpoints are safety and tolerability, but there are going to be PK measures, biomarker measures, and clinical indices as well. So 80 participants worldwide. The first patient was dosed three years ago now. It's again intrathecal injection of an ASO, patients being followed up for eight months, and we hope to get data from that exciting trial also later this year. And there is another ongoing trial. There is evidence that depleting ataxin-2 can interfere with TDP43 protein aggregations. So in 97% of ALS cases, it is a TDP43 proteinopathy. So you get depletion of this important protein from the nucleus and aggregation in the cytoplasm. And evidence has emerged that if you alter the level of ataxin 2, you may help to correct that TDP43 protein pathology. So, so much for the exciting developments in genetic therapies, but there are also some exciting developments in terms of potential small molecule neuroprotective agents, and I'll just highlight two of those. So the first one was published in the New England Journal of Medicine recently. So two agents, terosodiol and sodium phenylbutyrate in combination, and what they are doing is mitigating endoplasmic reticulum stress and mitochondrial dysfunction, with some good evidence that this might do some good in preclinical models. So the results of the phase two trial were published, and I'll just show the highlights here. So 89 patients were on the treatment group, 48 in the placebo group, and the primary endpoint, which was the change in the ALS functional rating scale, the treated group 
declined less in terms of points per month on the ALS functional rating scale versus the placebo group. And then with longer-term follow-up, there was evidence that that treatment did some good in terms of the median survival. So this combination treatment hasn't been licensed yet, and it's likely that a phase three trial is going to be done. I'll just talk as well a little bit about immunomodulation. In Europe, we've been doing a trial of low-dose interleukin-2, which upregulates Treg cell numbers in the peripheral blood. And earlier work, largely from Stan Appel's lab in Houston, showed that these Treg cell numbers and the function of the Treg cells is really important. And ALS or MND patients that have a higher Treg count have a better prognosis. So it makes sense to try and try therapies that might increase the Treg count. And there's a European trial funded by the EU aiming to do just that. And the initial phase of this trial was called IMODELS. And that was just a short-term trial trying to establish the safety of low-dose interleukin-2 and also establishing the best dose to use. So it was just undertaken over three months. And you can see here on the right-hand side the placebo group, one million international units of IL-2 and 2 million international units with a marked increase in the Treg cell count and also in the higher dose group a nice lowering of this inflammatory marker CCL2 also known as MCP1. So that gave good evidence that this treatment might be beneficial and in Citran at our institute, one of our talented young scientists actually looked at gene expression profiles in the peripheral blood mononuclear cells in this Imodels trial. And she was able to show that with treatment, there was a sharp down regulation of pro-inflammatory pathways, which was best in the higher dose group. But also she was able to identify good responders and less good responders. And the low responders had a more inflammatory phenotype based on their gene expression at baseline in this trial. So the phase 2b3 trial, which is known as Myrocals, where the patients were treated over an 18-month period with assessment of multiple biomarkers. And this trial is also completed and the final analyses are in preparation. So some exciting results from both genetic therapies and small molecules to come out during 2021. Just to very briefly mention stem cell therapies, so preclinical work. So again, some work done from Citran by a young scientist, Yuri Siervo. What he did was take adipose tissue-derived stem cells and he put them into the SOD1 transgenic mouse that I've already talked about intrathecally, but he also put them in human co-cultures. So human astrocytes made from ALS patients or controls with motor neurons grown on top of them and the ALS astrocytes are toxic to the motor neurons in that situation. 
So he took those stem cells and applied them in both of those paradigms. Again, I won't go into all of the details, but the mouse model treated with these cells into the CSF got improvement in motor function, delayed disease onset, delayed decline of motor function. And these mice were treated pre-symptomatically. And also putting those adipose-derived stem cells into the human co-culture model that I've explained, he got improved motor neuron survival in the stem cell-treated group. And just briefly, what those adipose-derived stem cells seemed to be doing was increasing the expression of neurotrophic factors like VEGF and IGF-1 and decreasing the expression of inflammatory mediators like TNF-alpha, IL-6, IL-1-beta, and MCP-1. So good evidence from preclinical studies that this approach might be helpful. And you may all be aware of the phase 3 neuron stem cell transplantation trial that have recently been publicized. And the overall results of this trial that involved 189 patients did not reach the primary endpoint. So in the stem cell treated group, so this was intrathecal delivery of the patient's own bone marrow derived stem cells this time, which had been manipulated ex vivo to express neurotrophic factors. There was a difference between the treated and placebo group, but not enough to reach significance. And that was because the placebo group did better than expected. So there are more results to emerge from this important trial in relation to levels of inflammatory mediators and neurotrophic factors, which we will hear about in due course. So let's move on to the second section now, moving towards new targeted treatments in ALS, so a more personalized medicine approach. So how can, what strategies could we put in place to improve clinical trial participation? So first of all, I think informing ALS centers around all the different countries and also informing patients themselves. So providing information if positive trial results emerge, we need both the patients and the ALS care centers to know about those so that patients can access exciting new therapies. I think there are measures in place to improve access for patients. So at the moment, only between 5 and 10% of ALS patients get the chance to participate in trials. So trial inclusion exclusion criteria are quite stringent, but there are measures in place to improve access to trials for patients, so platform trials. And of course, we must make sure that at the end of an experimental period of a trial, patients have the opportunity to get the open label therapy. And I think just involving patients and their caregivers more and more in what they want to see from clinical trials. 
I'll just give a couple of examples of some of the platform trials that are in development in Europe. So one is TriCALS. So this is a European platform trial setup involving 42 centers in 15 countries. And the aim is to allow much greater access for patients to clinical trials. We're going to be testing several potential neuroprotective treatments at once versus just one placebo group with with new approaches to trial design, bringing in innovative biomarkers. And these are some of the early studies that are going to go into our platform. And there's another trial led from Edinburgh in the UK called MND Smart that again has a similar approach, allowing a lot of patients to go into trials with quite light touch assessments. And the first treatments they are testing are memantine and trazodone. And I think just to highlight, I've already talked about SOD1 as a biomarker, neurofilament light levels in both CSF and blood. I think in the C9 genetic therapy trials, measuring the dipeptide repeat proteins in CSF is going to be a good biomarker. So there are multiple biomarkers in the pipeline, as it were, both in CSF and in blood, and also in urine, actually. The P75 extracellular domain in urine looks quite promising as well. So I think our future trials are going to be informed much more by potential biomarkers that hopefully will allow us to get the answer more quickly as to whether a potential therapy is working. And the last thing I want to talk about is the value of systematic genetic screening in ALS patients. And this is some work that we've done from Sheffield. We published it a few months ago in JNNP. And what enabled us to do that is a project called Ambrosia that is a five-year program funded by the MND Association involving three sites in the UK, Sheffield, Oxford and London. And what this trial funding has enabled us to do is systematically take biosamples from all our newly diagnosed ALS patients who consent, of course, to the study, and they all do. They're all very willing to help with research. So we took multiple different biosamples, but we also had the funding to screen the patients on a research basis for all the known ALS genes. We looked at a panel of 44 different genes, ones known to cause ALS, but also FTD, frontotemporal dementia, and other neurodegeneration genes. And what we found, in a nutshell, we looked at the first 100 patients that went into this Ambrosia program from Sheffield. Only seven of the 100 had a positive family history. So they are the ones that would have been offered on clinical grounds genetic testing. But actually what we found is that 21% of the 100 patients had a clinically reportable pathogenic mutation in one of the known ALS genes. Another 21% had what we had to call a variant of uncertain significance. So a change that may or may not be important after we'd ruled out benign changes in genes and those common in the control population. 
And this is just as you would expect. The commonest ones were C9 in 10%, SOD1 in 5%, and then there were other genes as well. And this just shows you, so in red are the definitely pathogenic changes. Here's C9, as expected, the most common. And then in orange are likely pathogenic changes. And then a lot of changes in blue that we have to classify as variants of uncertain significance. So a lot of work, I think, to be done on those variants that are currently of uncertain significance. So on the basis of these findings, we tried to make the case for routinely at least offering genetic screening to all ALS patients, whether or not they have a family history. Of course, not all patients may want to undertake that, but I think it should be available and offered. So 21% reportable alterations in known genes 93% of these patients did not have a positive family history. And importantly, those patients who had changes in SOD1 or C9, 15% of them would have potentially been eligible for the current genetic therapy trials that I've described. So the key messages, ALS is genetically heterogeneous, more than 30 risk genes uncovered, Pathogenic mutations can frequently be found in so-called sporadic ALS if systematic genetic screening is undertaken. Further work needed to determine the pathogenicity of variants of uncertain significance. And I think careful genetic subclassification of ALS is increasingly important in an era of current and upcoming genetic therapy trials. So what are the implications for genetic testing guidelines? In order to take part in the trials, genetic therapy trials I've described, you need to have testing for the genes that are being targeted. So if these trials emerge as positive at phase three, we need to know whether our patients have changes in these genes. And I know the International ALS Alliance is already working on this. We need to change the guidelines about genetic testing if we've got effective genetic therapies available for patients. And current guidelines in both the US and UK don't address this issue properly. So I think we're going to need to update the guidelines. And, you know, both genetic testing and genetic counselling are clearly going to become increasingly important. So just to conclude... The upstream genetic cause of ALS can be identified, we would argue, in somewhere more than 21% of patients, about 70% of those that have a known family history, so there are more genes still to be found. New clinical trial approaches need to take account of the heterogeneity of ALS and also incorporate experimental medicine and biomarker components. I'm really excited that biomarkers of therapeutic efficacy are beginning to emerge from recent trials with neurofilaments in CS7 plasma, the top candidates at the moment. Really important to me that carefully conducted preclinical work is beginning to translate or pull through into positive trial results for patients. As these genetic therapy approaches are emerging, with SOD1 gene silencing, treatments to get rid of the toxic 
dipeptide repeat proteins in C9 patients. Really exciting. And there are other gene therapy approaches using viral vectors. AAV9, for example, is a viral vector that gets across the blood-brain barrier very well and has proved very successful in trials of spinal muscular atrophy patients. I do believe our approach to offering genetic testing for all our ALS patients and their family members is going to need to change. I'm very hopeful that our new clinical trials platforms will allow greater access for patients and more rapid generation of trial results. So thank you very much for your attention. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partner, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash RQP 860. This activity is supported by an educational grant from Biogen.